This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Media Matters Minute, On the Media, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, and The Rachel Maddow Show. Sixty Minutes correspondent Steve Croft got a pretty amazing exclusive on the January 27th broadcast, a sit-down interview with Barack Obama and outgoing Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. At the top of the segment, Croft declared that the 30 minutes the White House offered was, quote, barely enough time to scratch the surface of their complicated personal and professional relationship, let alone discuss their policies on Iran and Israel, Russia and China, Egypt and Libya, close quote. Apparently what he meant was, so I didn't ask about any of that. Instead, the interview that aired featured questions like, why did you want to do this together, a joint interview? Has she had much influence on this administration? And how would you characterize your relationship right now? They did broach policy a bit. At one point, Croft asked, quote, this administration, I mean, you've generally gotten high marks, particularly from the voters for your handling of foreign policy, but there's no big singular achievement in the first four years that you can put your names on. What do you think the biggest success has been, foreign policy success, of the first term, close quote. A critic at The Atlantic noted that 60 Minutes had been much tougher on George W. Bush in a 2007 interview conceding that that tough coverage was appropriate. We were reminded of the fall of 2004 when 60 Minutes announced it would not air a report on forged documents that the Bush administration used to sell the Iraq war because, as a spokesperson declared, quote, it would be inappropriate to air the report so close to the presidential election, close quote. Now, that was a remarkable journalistic decision, arguably more problematic than a softball interview after an election has passed. The point is that 60 Minutes, supposedly the gold standard when it comes to broadcast journalism, shouldn't be doing either. Ooh, you win, it's your show now, so what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in, how many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch, oh, and we thought this was low. Recently, President Obama and Al Gore have both come out uh, aggressively against Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and saying, look, they're influencing Republican politicians to be more and more extreme. Now, that's a point that seems nearly indisputable, even if you don't think they have overall a lot of power, and I would, I'm going to argue against that in a second. You've got to at least admit that uh, they are pushing uh, the Republican politicians more to the right. And that's the point that Gore and Obama were making. But Howard Kurtz at CNN takes issue with that. And he's written a column uh, asking them to stop whining. In fact, literally, he says, quote, my response, can we please stop the whining? Now, okay, first of all, that's the easiest trick in the world. Whenever you disagree with anybody, you accuse them of being a whiner. Okay. Uh, but let's go to the heart of the argument. So he says, quote, I never realized that the conservative media were so eye-poppingly powerful, 
So this is a dismissive tone. Come on, everybody knows the media is liberal. Uh, and so, <laughs> sort of media being powerful, that's so funny. Really? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. So, for example, in the year 2000, um, I believe we had a little bit of an election, by the way, that involved Al Gore. And who was that election called for, called by first? It's a fact. You can look it up if you like. Fox News Channel. They were the first network to call it for George W. Bush. Now, the reality, as we found out later, was that it was a statistical tie, and it shouldn't have been called for either side. Do you know who Fox News had hired to call the election? The person in charge of calling the election was literally George W. Bush's cousin. And then what happened? The rest of the networks panicked. Again, you can go back and look at the tape if you like. You can politifact it, check anything you like on this, okay? And the rest of the networks after Fox News called it and said, oh my God, Fox News called it. We, we got to call it. Okay, never mind. George Bush won. George Bush won. George Bush won. George Bush won. They all called it just like Fox News did because they don't want to be late. They don't want to be late. We already had a news network call the election. And the, the idea that George W. Bush had definitively won and Al Gore had lost, did that wind up affecting how things went down afterwards? Mm, a little bit. But no, 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 conservative media isn't eye-poppingly -pow powerful at all, right? And then there was, of course, the Iraq War, where Fox News came out and waved the flag, and MSNBC fired Phil Donahue and everybody else. They waved the flag, and they followed Fox News. And look, go from 1996 to 2006, and Fox News ran the media. I know t to the uh, people working in the establishment media, that is heresy. They think when you say that, they're like, oh, radical. Oh, come on. Don't be ridiculous. Everybody knows the media is liberal. Nonsense. Fox News would push one story after another into the mainstream of the media, and CNN and MSNBC would run behind it like lapdogs. Those three networks are in every newspaper uh, office. They're in every radio office. They're in every local television office, and they all followed all on Fox News. Now, things have gotten a little better. In, uh, in 2006, Keith Olbermann does his famous special comments. MSNBC starts going to the left. The equation gets a little balanced out. Now, uh, is Fox News still powerful? Look, they sneezed in Van Jones' direction, and Obama threw him uh, overboard. They just looked at Shirley Sherrod the wrong way. She had to be pulled over literally to the side of the road and fired. Not fired, uh, encouraged to resign immediately. So, if you think that they're not powerful within the White House, well, you're not following the news. Let alone their enormous influence over the GOP. All right, these things should be obvious to anybody following the news. Then uh, Kurtz goes on to this next comment. Uh, whatever you think of Fox, Rupert Murdoch's network has been a financial success, and current TV was anything but. Now, this is my favorite argument. Oh, well, ha-ha, Fox News worked. It was a financial success. So they must be right. They must be doing something right. And progressive media, ah, you can't figure it out. I know. So wait, which one is it? Are, is all the media liberal? Or can liberals not succeed at all in media? Which one? They never clarify that point. Okay, so on to the issue of Fox News being so great. Well, they are. They're doing terrific in the ratings, right? Now, was it immediate? Of all people, Britt Hume said this. Fox News lost $90 million a year for the first five years and hence lost $450 million, nearly half a billion dollars, before they turned a profit. Now, if current TV or whoever else also had half a million dollars, half a billion dollars to invest, could they do well? The answer is yes, because look at MSNBC. They also have incredibly deep pockets, and look at that. 
now they're incredibly successful. When people told me that, oh, liberals will never succeed on TV and get ratings, I was like, yeah, I know, yeah, the country is at least 50% progressive. But somehow, magically, none of them watch TV. How painfully stupid is that? So it's a matter of having enough capital to make that investment. So now, in order to understand that you shouldn't take success in the ratings uh, as a guide for who's right and who's wrong, let me give you two more uh, points here. First of all, O'Reilly, who's been the leader in cable news for a long, long time, over a decade, um, has at his height, not anymore, but at his height, had over 3 million viewers a night. So let's do a quick math on that. 3 million viewers are exactly 1% of the U.S. population. So the fact that they were able to super serve that audience and say to conservatives, hey, you know what? Okay, we're your guys, and they got 1% of the country to follow them. Does that mean that the country is conservative? No, it means 1% of the country is really conservative and loves Fox News Channel. Hey, look, I'll be unbiased in the sense that I'll tell you about us, right? Like, now look, these are positive numbers, so it's not a big deal that I reveal this, right? But I'm going to tell you why it doesn't mean that we're necessarily right. So, for example, the Young Turks, we have uh, for over 40 million views a month on YouTube alone. We've got over 100 million minutes viewed a month. Last month it was 103 million. And we have over 1 billion views in our network. If you combined all of the other conservative media and times it by 10 online, they would not equal the Young Turks. Now, does that mean that the Young Turks then are right about politics? Well, the country's obviously on the Young Turks side. Whatever the Young Turks says, it must be gospel because they're so much larger than the conservative online news outlets. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means we do, I hope, an entertaining program and a lot of people watch it. But it's nowhere near 51% of the country, which, by the way, would be awesome. So stop with the specious nonsense arguments about, oh, well, Fox News does well in the ratings, so the country must be with them. Okay, and that's the only way you can succeed uh, financially. Nonsense. Now, he, uh, Howard Kurtz points out something else here. In the, he says, and it had done, then the White House Communications Director, uh, called Fox the communication arm of the Republican Party and said, it is not really a news network anymore. The resulting furor gave Fox months of fodder and was widely judged a tactical misstep. Okay, think about that, right? So why is that a tactical misstep? Fox News is not really a news network. Come on. Does anybody in America actually think that they are an unbiased news network, that they don't have a conservative slant to the news at all? Nobody in their right mind could possibly think that. If you ask conservatives, they don't think that. The only people who think that are the people that work in cable news. Now, why? Why would CNN and MSNBC, theoretical competitors to Fox News, want to continue that myth and say, oh, it was a misstep to challenge them on being a news network? Here's what you have to understand. A third, and this is roughly, and I worked in cable news, so I know, about a third of the people have already worked on Fox News. Now, they, these are the same producers and so-called reporters, etc., that are circulating in cable news on television, right? Third of the reporters, the producers, have said they already worked at Fox News. They might work there now, or they already moved out and they're now at MSNBC or CNN. I can't tell you the number of people that worked at Fox News that now work at MSNBC. I saw it, right? I'm not blaming them. That's just the reality, okay? A third of them think, well, maybe I might work there one day. So I better be cool about criticizing Fox News. Oh, they're a news network. They're definitely a news network. And at least a third. But in reality at least two-thirds 
know someone in the industry that is a friend of theirs that works at Fox News Network. And they don't want to say, hey, Joe or Sally are propagandists that work for an arm of the Republican Party. They want to say, no, they're good, solid news anchors. I mean, I have their opinion shows on Fox News. But oh, my friend, the producer, my friend, the reporter, is terrific reporter. No, no, no. I know he's taking money from Roger Ailes, who used to be you know, the chief propagandist for the Republican Party and is still the chief propagandist for the Republican Party, but on a much more efficient scale at Fox News. But I can't say it because my friend is there and I might work there and and two, three of my producers worked there earlier. That's why they defend Fox News. That's why they're the only people in the country that won't admit that obviously Fox News is conservative and wholly supports the Republican Party. The guys on cable news pretending to compete with Fox News. And then finally, I will give Howard this credit. He does get it right at the end. He said, but let's face it, these are cable channels with relatively modest audiences and their impact is sometimes exaggerated inside the Beltway echo chamber. Well, that part is now finally true. It wasn't true from 96 to 2006, but right now the reason Shirley Sherrod, the Van Jones, etc., all those guys got thrown overboard is because President Obama and his White House is obsessed with Fox News and they give them more power than they merit. Yes, they are influential in all the ways that I described. And yes, they influence the Republican Party to be much more radical and more right-wing. No one could dispute that in their right mind. But you're giving them more power by saying, Oh my God, what did they say? Oh, what is Glenn Beck going to say? Oh, no, it's all right. going to say. Oh, no, going to say. Glenn Beck was such a fool, he got thrown out by Fox News. But meanwhile, the whole time, the Obama administration was in a panic over what Glenn Beck was going to say. Stop it already. Stop watching Fox News Channel at the White House and keep reacting to them and keep going further and further right wing to appease them because you're giving them more power than they already have. So on that note, Howard Kurtz and I can agree. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jeremy Holden. Fox News and Rush Limbaugh recently came under criticism from the president for discouraging congressional Republicans from working with Democrats to pass legislation. How did they respond? By telling Republicans how to move forward on comprehensive immigration reform, of course. Here's Fox host Sean Hannity. And to be honest, I frankly have little or no trust in Senator Schumer, Senator Durbin, and President Obama. You know, I don't really think they want to solve the issue. I think they want to politicize it. So my advice to Republican lawmakers, proceed with caution. Rush Limbaugh, on the other hand, will happily take credit if Republicans derail comprehensive immigration reform. I, I don't know that there's any stopping this. I... It's up to me and Fox News, and I don't think Fox News is that invested in this. This month, Facebook announced a new feature called Graph Search, which allows Facebookers to locate other users based on their declared interests and, of course, likes. So, if you want a list of every Facebook-using NPR employee who self-identifies as a fan of the Prius, the names are but a click away. Privacy advocates dislike the graph search, partly because you can't opt out of it. 
In anticipation of the new feature, Facebook quietly updated its privacy rules so that no one is entirely allowed to avoid such searches. So far, only a few beta testers have been able to actually use this feature, but at least one of them immediately saw the possibilities. Tom Scott is a British humorist who created a Tumblr to display how easily graph search can be turned into a humiliation engine. The entire top bar, the blue bar that every Facebook user knows at the top of the page, is being replaced by one big blue search box. And you can type into that pretty much anything you want. Photos of my friends from last year. Restaurants near me that friends of friends like. Which is really, really useful. It's actually covering every single thing that is on Facebook that's classified as public. And that includes a lot of things that I don't think people meant to be public. The mind reels with the dystopic possibilities, but you are a humorist, so naturally you were attracted to the funny possibilities, and your Tumblr is pretty funny. Thank you very much. I went for the cheap jokes. <laughs> if you can look for anything, anywhere in the world that anyone likes, and then filter it, you can do initial things like Italian Catholics who like Durex condoms. That's an easy, cheap sex joke. But then, because Facebook's got all this data, you can start adding things in and making it quite creepy. You can have the mothers of Italian Catholics who like Durex condoms. <laughs> and again, everything here is listed as public. One of the less funny ones is that you can start looking for religious information in more suppressive regimes. The most unsettling one that I was willing to put online was any family member of anyone who lives in China who is listed as a fan of Falun Gong, which is the, the banned religious organization. It's quite an impressive demonstration as a way to startle people into realizing what's public. Let's put China aside for a moment. Let's talk about the West, where people who post personal data on Facebook do so either because they feel comfortable that it will be available only to friends and family and maybe other casual onlookers, or because they're naive or even stupid, and don't realize that potentially compromising information sits there more or less in perpetuity. But that's a wholly different matter than people being able to trawl for certain bits of information and then be able to harvest your name and all sorts of other information about you for God knows what nefarious purposes. Facebook graph search is interesting, it's creepy, and it's a wonderful reminder that we need to watch what we put online. As time goes on, this data is only going to become more and more searchable. Processing power only increases, and graph search would have been impossible five, ten years ago on this amount of data. Most people who have public information on Facebook accidentally probably aren't going to end up being hurt by it. I mean, a few will take that gamble and lose, but it'll be a, a small minority. Graph search in, in an odd, anonymized form has been available to Facebook's advertisers for, well, quite a few years now. You could drill down and just advertise to single people in New York who were interested in cats. It's available to everyone now, and it's got names on it. So let's just say this is a, a fact of online life that we all have to deal with forevermore. What would you advise to ordinary Facebook users so that they do not become victims of this next wrinkle in search technology? My advice is generally, if you wouldn't want it splashed on a billboard in Times Square, don't put it on Facebook, don't put it on the web. Facebook does have very good privacy settings if you check through them and you take the time. If you click the privacy button that's there, it kind of has a little padlock icon on it. You can go through lockdown. If anything says public there, 
it might be worth changing it to friends only. Tom, you did a number of searches, not all of which you posted the results of on your Tumblr. Some were too unsettling for you to share. Can you give me a general idea of the kinds of things you blundered upon? There was one in particular that I don't want to give people ideas for. And I realize that that sounds like I'm being overdramatic. I realize that's what I would say to make this seem nastier than it is. So you will either have to, to believe me or not. There are a lot of Facebook groups that people join because of events in their past. And a lot of those groups, uh, even though the messages in them are private, the fact that you've joined them isn't. There are some searches that could be used by someone who was sociopathic to cause immediate and quite distressing harm to quite a few people. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. You can visit Tom Scott's appropriately named Tumblr at actual Facebook graph searches dot Tumblr, that's T-U-M-B-L-R, dot com. Facebook provided us with this comment about graph search and privacy, quote, you can only see what you could already view elsewhere on Facebook. The search results follow privacy settings which are set by the owner of the content. That means you get to choose what you share and with whom. I won't share you. I won't share you. With the drive and ambition. The zeal I fear. This is my time. Notes I wrote as she read She said Has the Perrier gone straight to my head Or is life sick and cruel instead Yes No, 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 no Do you think that long term there's just going to be a move away from this type of news because what wasn't included in this poll are questions about, well, what about alternative media and what about networks? Uh, what about simply going to YouTube or, or wherever else, right? I mean, we, we see uh, the, and the other problem I really have, and actually I, it, this is maybe a good opportunity to bring this up, is that we have a real media literacy problem in this country. There are so many emails I get from people and hateful comments on YouTube and tweets and Facebook, which people are trying to make arguments about our level of accuracy or bias or whatever it is. And it becomes so obvious that people don't understand the fundamental difference between news reporting and opinion shows. In other words, people will say the David Pakman show is more or less biased than Fox News reporting. It's like, well, wait, wait a second. Fox News reporting is a news reporting agency. We do an opinion show. We're not doing original news. We do interviews where sometimes news will break because of what's said by the guest, but we're doing an analysis and commentary show. The term bias has a totally different meaning in this context than it does in the context of talking about Fox News. Just fundamentally, when I, and I don't care if people are using it to criticize or to, or to compliment this show. This, it's just a comparison that shows the lack of media literacy that's happening here. Yeah. And, I mean, don't get us wrong, if you choose to get you, the majority of your news from us, well, that's fantastic. I mean, hopefully one day, you know, independent media outlets like us will have the resources to be able to cover breaking news like CNN. Of course. Like Fox, um, like the big networks, but uh, that's that's going to take a while. Do you also see this, Natan, when you look through YouTube comments? And it's just the, the, the comments are 
The comments can be oftentimes absurd at face value, but when you actually analyze them, it shows that people are increasingly unable to distinguish between types of programs. That's true, although, on the other hand, uh, most shows now have a sort of, well, there are two things that are happening. One is that a lot of shows mix opinion with fact, and two, they a lot of networks, not just TV networks, but print media and online media, they reprint stories uh, ad nauseum. They don't do investigative reporting, and a lot of major news stations are scrapping their investigative news departments. And right. This is terrible because essentially this causes everyone to be on the same page with the same line, which may or may not even be verified. Right. There are a number news. of stories which essentially are all just assuming that one initial news story is correct in reporting the facts. And it may be AP or Reuters or, or one of the TV news agencies. And everything is kind of based off of that. There's not a variety of, of original reporting either. See it in his eyes. Look when he's not looking The things that lift him up Don't stay around so long See it in his hands Grasping onto nothing The things that lift him up Don't stay around so long so Soledad O'Brien was the host of Starting Point since 2011. It's their morning show, and man, was she aggressive with her guests. Exactly the kind of journalism that the most trusted name in news should be doing, holding power accountable. She would challenge Democrats and Republicans alike. Old school journalism, it was refreshing to see. So obviously she's now being moved out. She was on the Wendy Williams show, and they had this uh, interaction. Before we get started, if you don't mind, because it's everywhere, are you leaving CNN? You know, we're talking about my role. As you know, it's been reported a lot that the morning show is going a different direction. Right. So I'm going to, you know, we're, we're talking about what ways I can contribute to CNN, doing the stuff that I like to do, which is hard-hitting journalism. You know, I like, doing, I like doing documentaries. I like doing hard-hitting, um, you know, grilling people. Well, she does. Now, if you're a real news organization, you would love that. CNN, not so much. Okay, now it is official, it appears, that uh, she will be continuing in some role at CNN, but more independent. She'll be doing some documentaries that CNN might air. But she will not be staying on the morning show. She will not be moved to prime time. She will not be a host anywhere on CNN. By the way, the person most likely to replace her, basically I've already said it, it's Aaron Burnett. So you take the biggest spokesperson for the rich and powerful, and for multinational corporations, and you have to replace the one journalist on your network who's actually challenging the government. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't know. Now, a lot of people will say, Soledad O'Brien moving on from CNN, basically, despite the fact that she was doing hard-hitting journalism. As Greenwald usually says, it's not despite that, it's because of that. Here is what CNN did not like when Soledad O'Brien broke out with a new style of actually doing her job. You would limit the child's credit. You would okay, limit that, more... Uh, well, wait a minute. i got to stop that because that's factually ridiculous. Really? I've never okay. called... Yeah, factually wrong and ridiculous what part and not of that? close. Some of those loopholes uh, in credit, though, would be, for example, the, the mortgage interest deduction. You, you want to get rid of that or, they, or limit that, they, right? Well, and the child might, credit? 
They, they might be. The child uh, credit and also the mortgage interest deduction. And you have said earlier, uh, Medicaid and Medicare, right, all of those. And there are people who look at that, which is what you're proposing, and say, so that's bad for the middle class. Those are all deductions that middle class people rely on and, and wealthy people don't okay. really rely on. Well, I'm saying he's so we're saying... We're going to blame um, this on Bush, too? We're, we're going to blame... In other words... You've got to stop putting the, the words in my mouth, sir. Seriously, hang on. Let me finish. But this was due to... Uh, this terrible movie about Mohammed. Which, he mentioned, but, but he, he actually mentioned didn't say that, right? The, the verbatim, the actual verbatim of what he uh, said. He, every time I ask you a question, you like to push back as if somehow the question that's being posed to you is unfair. It's not. I'm a journalist. You said some things. I'm trying to get some accurate responses from you. You are welcome to answer. Go ahead. With the adoption of no-fault divorce, when when the government takes a position of a policy position on marriage, uh, it has an effect. But when government took a position, let's say, uh, against the uh, ban to racial marriage, it had an effect, too. One so thing I'm debating with you <laughs> is just specific. So when you quote someone or you paraphrase them, the only thing I ask is that you get that accurate. Well, that's, that's all I ask. So, so we're going to pull those because you're not. You're a little bit off as you describe it. See, the establishment media hates that. They're like, oh, that sounds a little rude. No, but you can't let a politician lie on your air if he's got the quote wrong, he's got the facts wrong, or he's got a different agenda. It is your job to expose that agenda. It's your job to bring the truth to your audience. That's exactly what Soledad was doing. That's why she had to go. It, look, she was trusted. CNN calling themselves the most trusted name in news while basically removing her from the equation is ridiculous. Now, look, I, I don't get me wrong. The ratings for the show in the morning were not great. So if you say that's a factor, I hear you. And look, we're being honest. We like her a lot. But you got to be honest about that, too. But if you said, for example, hey, you know what? The morning shows, if they're a little lighter, they do a little better. And the hard-hitting journalism should be done at prime time. Or maybe you put her in the middle of the day. Those all would have been reasonable things. But to basically get rid of her, by the way, they, that will maybe we'll do documentaries down the road. That's what they told Ann Curry when they got rid of her at the Today Show. Have you seen any Ann Curry documentaries? No, if you valued that kind of journalism, you would have kept Soledad O'Brien. Obviously, CNN has no interest in that kind of journalism. The kind of reporting they're interested in is, the government said this, the Pentagon said that, the Republicans said this, the Democrats said that. Have I pleased everybody yet? Yay, government! That's terrible reporting. The only thing you're missing, Jake, is that Cable News Network can't rehire people that get bad ratings. CNN never did it. MSNBC <laughs> never did it. Like Tucker Carlson, he <laughs> never got rehired. Come on, come right? on. Yeah. Tucker Carlson had one chance. He screwed that up. It's over. <laughs> Only got rehired about eight times, right? And, like it would never happen in any of these fields. Like, like Norv Turner, after screwing up eighteen different teams, he wouldn't get rehired, would he? <laughs> okay. No, no, no. There's a reason why Soledad's out, and it's because she was actually doing something right. I mentioned the other day, in passing, that the story by Ben Shapiro of Breitbart.com 
that led to uh, questioning by guys like Ted Cruz of Defense Secretary nominee Chuck Hagel. Why won't you release what groups you have spoken to, how much money they paid, and who these people are? And Chuck Hagel was just like, what? What? What are you talking about? Well, it seems that the right wing and guys like Ted Cruz had convinced themselves that Chuck Hagel was hiding the fact that he was paid money for speaking in front of a group called the Friends of Hamas. And then it became clear that there is no such group called Friends of Hamas. Aside from it being a really ridiculous name of a group that you would name yourself, but aside from that, it would also be an incredibly irresponsible thing, just in terms of one's own self-interest, <laughs> if you were uh, sort of dabbling in politics, to go and speak in front of that group. You know, uh, it just sounds like something that someone who was... Never mind, uh, never mind where their political inclinations lie, just who had any rational self-interest would do if they were looking for a political career. A three-term U.S. senator. Yeah, it just sounds a little bit odd. It, it would make you just first question the premise. So the question is, is how did Ben Shapiro of Breitbart.com, I mean, aside from the fact that obviously there's no... There's no editors there at Breitbart.com who are interested in anything other than um, hits from their right-wing universe. Uh, how did that fake story get started? Well, Dan Friedman from the Daily News writes that he thinks that he was probably the guy who started this inadvertently. He writes, on February 6th, I called a Republican, Hill on Capitol, uh, a Republican aide on Capitol Hill with a question. Did Hagel's Senate critics know of any controversial groups that he had addressed? And he, uh, Dan continues, I asked my source, had Hagel given a speech to, say, I don't know, the Junior League of Hezbollah in France, or what about the Friends of Hamas? He was joking, but was using hyperbole as a way of trying to figure out what these conservatives may or may not have in terms of accusing Hegel. You know, it's like saying, like, um, what, what did he speak in front of, uh, you know, the, um, the terrorist reunion 2013 or something like that? And he writes, the names are so over the top, so linked to Spectre. terrorism in the Middle East, that it was clear, <laughs> yeah, Spectre, did he speak to chaos? Uh, that I, it was clear I was talking hypothetically and hyperbolically. No one would take seriously the idea that organizations with those names existed, let alone that a former senator would speak to them. Or so I thought. The aide promised to get back uh, to me. I followed up with an email as a reminder. Did he get 25000 speaking fee from friends of Hamas? Now, one has to wonder if this reporter had written LOL at the end of it, if the aide would have gotten the clue. But apparently not. The source never responded, and I moved on. Then, on February 7th, the conservative website Breitbart.com screamed this headline, Secret Hegel Donor? Question mark. White House Spock's Ducks Question on Friends of Hamas. 
And Ben Shapiro wrote on Thursday, Senate sources I told, uh, told Breitbart News exclusively. Exclusively. Yes, there you go. I imagine these Senate sources told other people, but they weren't stupid enough to actually believe it. That they've been informed one of the reasons that President Barack Obama's nominee for Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel has not turned over requested documents on his sources of foreign funding is that one of the names listed in the group purportedly called Friends of Hamas. The author, Ben Shapiro, wrote that the White House spokesman hung up on him when he called for comment. <laughs> Shapiro tweeted the link to his nearly 40,000 Twitter followers. Blogs like RedState.com and the National Review's The Corner linked to it. In Israel, Mike Huckabee said rumors of Chuck Hagel's having received friends, uh, funds from friends of Hamas would, if true, disqualify him. And that, apparently, it may be that's true. true yes, if true, would be. Dan Friedman was not aware of the story until this past Sunday, when he glanced at his phone and saw uh, Slate.com story raising big doubts whether Friends of Hamas even exists. On Monday, I reached my source. The person denied sharing my query with Breitbart, but admitted the chance of having mentioned it to others. Since the source knew we spoke under a standard that my questions weren't for sharing, that's a problem. Yeah, I'll say. But there's another failsafe. Since Friends of Hamas speech was imaginary, it's not like another reporter could confirm it, right? Not quite. Reach Tuesday, Shapiro acknowledged, this is the best part, he acknowledged that Friends of Hamas might not exist, might not exist. But he said his story used, quote, very, very specific language to avoid flatly claiming that it did. Quote, the story as reported is correct. Whether the information I was given by the source is correct, I am not sure. So in other words, folks, if I was to tell you that Ben Shapiro, I have been told, let me put it this way, by Matt sitting across there, that Ben Shapiro is actually a Manchurian reporter for Breitbart.com. His name is not Shapiro, but is in fact a name of Arab origin that he changed as a way of, of, of trying to sink the Hegel nomination. I'm reporting you that story. The story as reported is true. I can't vouch for what Matt said. The only thing you did there that wasn't the direct parallel is you shouldn't have used Matt's name. Right, I should have said it on name source. Because I've in some way indicated the potential for it to be not credible. Right, or there was actually a human being that you could follow up with some of what you said. Indeed. With. Well, congratulations, uh, Ben Shapiro and Breitbart.com. You have outdone yourself. In October, the month before the election, when the unemployment rate dropped a couple of tenths of percent, uh, the former head of GE, Jack Welch, tweeted that the data was made up. Quote, unbelievable jobs numbers. These Chicago guys will do anything. Can't debate, so change numbers. 
Jack Welch started it and then it became a thing on the right. The unemployment rate is made up. The economics data that Obama is peddling is just phony. Uh, you start with the unemployment rate. So are they playing around wow. with the numbers? Look, it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's supposed to be nonpartisan, but that's the Department of Labor, Hilda Solis. Heads of the Department of Labor, Hilda Solis, works directly for Obama. I'm, you know, are you saying they're cooking well, the books? Are you saying they're cooking the... You are saying that, aren't you? The president faked the unemployment rate. He made it up. Also, the president is bulldozing President Reagan's childhood home. Whoa. This is one wall that probably shouldn't be torn down. This apartment building used to be the home of a young Ronald Reagan. It was denied landmark status, and the University of Chicago is ready to demolish it. The university, which has close ties to the Obamas, is also trying to become the site of President Obama's presidential library. That's drawing strong concerns the university might turn President Reagan's former house into a parking lot for an Obama library. And then President Obama's going to exhume Ronald Reagan, and then he's going to... It's not true. But it sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's very exciting in a bad way to think President Obama is personally going to be bulldozing something related to Ronald Reagan, even if he isn't. Oh, and do you remember Ringgate at WorldNet Daily, where Rick Santorum works now? President Obama's supposed wedding ring is actually a secret I am a Muslim ring. Quote, the ring Obama has been wearing for more than 30 years is adorned with the first part of the Islamic Declaration of Faith. Oh, wait, 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 that's not it. No, wait, did I say the ring proves he's secretly Muslim? No, I meant gay. It secretly proves he's gay. It is a wedding ring, but it's a gay wedding ring. So you could see why I'd be confused. This is also World Net Daily. It's about the same ring, but it's a whole different conspiracy theory about how he's gay. So the ring shows he was gay married. That's all World Net Daily. Over at Breitbart, uh, they have been very upset about this picture of the president throwing a football. Uh, in that corner of the right-wing media, President Obama was not actually throwing a photo, uh, a, fo a football in this photo. Uh, you see, you can tell because he's looking slightly up there. That's just inexplicable. Why would you do such a thing? Clearly, it's doctored. There's no way in football you always look, you know, down or to the side, unless you're a secretly gay married Muslim bulldozing Reagan. Now, the latest one uh, is this, according to the right. This is not really a picture of the president shooting a gun. Yes, when the New Republic in a recent interview asked the president if he had ever shot a gun, he said yes, he has been skeet shooting at Camp David. The White House supported the claim by tweeting out this picture of the president shooting skeet. And that's when the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs right wing fired up the conspiracy machine. According to them, this isn't really a picture of the president shooting a gun. So you, they can tell because the president is shooting with the gun sort of too flat. He's too straight. See, now he's too straight. Uh, then there's the errant smoke where it shouldn't be. Also, his stance. Bad form. Can't be real. Also, a little pot belly. No, I'm not kidding. That actually really was part of the argument against the veracity of this picture. You can see his tummy. Clearly a conspiracy. In the real world, a tummy means you maybe had a jelly donut. But in the world where Obama invents jobs numbers, tears down the home of Ronald Reagan, wears a Muslim ring, I mean a gay ring, and doesn't really play football, he just looks like he is, well then him having a little poochy belly means that the vast left-wing conspiracy is photoshopping political capital for gun control. You know how we do.
So you remember the Commission on Presidential Debates? They're the ones that put together all those debates between Mitt Romney and and Barack Obama, obviously, right? Now uh, they've got a couple of co-chairs, and one of them is, of course, a Republican, and his name is Frank Farenkopf. He's the co-chair, and they asked him about the debates and how do how does he think that they went? He said they I thought they went really well, with one exception. Oh, interesting. Why? He said, "Quote: We made one mistake this time. Her name is Candy." Damn. Referring to Candy Crowley from CNN. Now, why was that a mistake? Because Candy Crowley did not listen to instructions that she was given by the commission that she was not to ask any follow-up questions. That was problem number one. How dare you? you your job is to sit there like all the other robotic anchors, ask the easy, obvious questions that we have prepared talking points for on both sides. We recite our talking points and then we move on and we make sure that nobody in the audience is any the wiser and we've gotten out our points. So she dared to ask follow-up questions. Wow. Yo, oof, never hire her again. And then of course she famously fact-checked Mitt Romney in the middle of one of the debates when he said that the president had uh, never called the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi an act of terror, and the president had. And of course, that the Republicans were livid over that, and they are still seething, and they're saying that's it, end of Candy Crowley. She actually did her job as a journalist and fact-checked in real time in the middle of the debate and asked follow-up questions. You're fired. We're gonna, never going to make that mistake again. Look, the reason why this story is actually really important. Is because this is not just about Candy Crowley. And Candy Crowley realized her mistake in actual reporting right afterwards. If you remember, back after the debates and for the next day and a half or so, she was out there doing Maoist like apologies, like, I'm so sorry for fact checking. I'm so sorry. Right? And what's being sent now as a message is oh, don't, don't try to be a hero here and be an actual reporter. If you do, there will be consequences. You won't get the access, you won't get the highlight. I mean, we gave you a post there. We gave you this huge spotlight. And all you had to do was bow your head and do your job, which is not to ask any interesting questions, not to probe, and not to give facts. That's the modern day journalist in America. That's the modern day TV reporter. Candy Crowley broke those laws, and now they're sending a message after the debates. Don't any of you ever do that again, otherwise you'll be banned, you'll be put on a blacklist, and you'll never moderate again, and you won't get all those accolades for being a very important debate moderator during the presidential contest. That's what this message is about, and it's sick. Send a message. I saw this clip. It was tweeted out by uh, David Sirota, who's written a piece on the enormous money that Cl uh, Hillary Clinton can expect after leaving office from corporations that she may have had um, uh, some dealings with in the past, uh, may have dealings with in the future. And he's writing a story, basically, this is sort of problematic, about um, the not just how the revolving door works, but also as to 
the stakes for politicians as to whether or not they get reelected or what their future may be, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the amazing part of this clip actually comes a couple of minutes into it. Uh, Sirota has been arguing this piece, and uh, he's been arguing back and forth with Howie Kurtz, who is in one of the the uh, corners of the, the TV screen. Uh, uh, Alona from, uh, from HuffPost Live is on there, and uh, another uh, talking head who I can't remember who she is, uh, but she addresses this as well. I want you to listen to this because... It is, and my heart goes out to everybody involved in that panel, and to some extent, the reporter, and to all of America and the world. Uh, this is so, in some ways, disturbing and wonderfully uh, hilarious. Very quickly, it. let me make the point that, that, that if, you're, if you're promised money, if the, there's an implied promise of making hundreds of thousands of you dollars have no from evidence corporations that after you leave office, such a promise. Well, we're going you to no find out. There, there's, absolute, oh, there's absolutely an implied promise. Just look at her husband. There is an implied promise to all politicians that when they get out of office, they can, if they play the game correctly, they'll make hundreds of thousands of dollars from the companies that they are supposed to be overseeing while in office. Okay, but let me ask you this, and, and Lauren, I want to bring you into this. What do you think people are going to want? to hear from her, her experience as a Secretary of State or First Lady? Of course, of course. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I think that it's a broad range, but I also happen to, I have to go back to what David and, and Howie were arguing over, because everybody has done this. I mean, Ronald Reagan was paid, what, $12 million for a speech in Japan? I mean, okay, so if there is a problem with this and, and the government has a problem with this, then we should address that. But at this point to say Hillary shouldn't be allowed to do it because because it's wrong, even okay. though everybody else well, is. Well, who's saying she shouldn't right, be allowed to do it? Right, no I, one's I saying she shouldn't be allowed to do it. Well, well, listen, guys, bring one more years. thing into here. Uh, well, yeah, let me get in here for a moment, too, though, can ladies. I? I? Yeah, but just hold on a second, if you would, please, Alona, because Michelle Obama's making some news today. And I know it's kind of on a lighter subject, but everybody's talking about her new bangs. And, and she says this is actually the result of a midlife crisis. Her bangs. Here she is explaining it on Rachel Ray. There you have it, uh, folks. In the middle of that, let me just bring this into the mix. Um, Michelle Obama's got bangs! I, I, I don't know really what to say other than um, I, my heart goes out to all of us. We're doomed. We all need a pantomime to remind us what is real. Oh my, I know what it means. Cause I'm out of my mind. I'm out Here's something really, really interesting. UC Irvine professors Stephen Frenda, Eric Knowles, and Elizabeth Loftus, in partnership with William Salatan from the Slate Group, did a study which is published in the Journal of, uh, of Experimental Social Psychology, which brought in people. They brought over 5,000 participants, and they were asked their memories about three true political events. But in there, they were also asked their memories about one of five 
fabricated political events. So I might bring you in, Lewis, and I'd say, tell me what you remember from 9-11. Tell me what you remember from Winter Storm Nemo. What do you remember from Hurricane Katrina? And what do you remember from that time that George W. Bush uh, was involved in a gay affair with the Saudi prince whose hand he was holding in that picture? Yeah. And people react, right? When it was uh, individuals who were conservatives, they were more likely to remember a false story that involved Barack Obama uh, being portrayed negatively. And when it was liberals, they were more likely to believe a false story about uh, Republicans being portrayed negatively. However, this is the statistic. This is the incredible statistic. 50% of the study's participants remembered the fabricated political event, and 27% Remember having seen specific media coverage about that event. Remember, the event did not happen. Did not happen. So the events that were used were conservatives were very likely, uh, were more likely to falsely remember Barack Obama shaking hands with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Never happened. Liberals were more likely to remember George W. Bush vacationing with a baseball celebrity right after Hurricane Katrina. So... This is just, it's fascinating. Now, we have to take into consideration one thing. Is it possible that the numbers are skewed because some people really didn't remember the event but didn't want to appear uninformed, so they said they remembered the event? Do we have to account for that, guys? I'm sure that would make up for a certain percentage of this, but we know that uh, in similar studies where someone, uh, a childhood photo of someone is photoshopped into uh, another picture somewhere where they've never been uh, when asked if they remember this this day this event where right. they were they will form fake memories uh, around it so yeah. this is a common thing what do you think of this Natan? I think this is incredible well look th there's a long list of studies that are confirming this idea that people can remember things that didn't happen because a few months ago if you remember there was a a poll done on fiscal cliff deals or maybe even just a budget deal and they asked people to say to to tell them whether they were familiar with different plans. And they asked, you know, Simpson Bowles and, you know, McCain, whatever, and they included one that didn't exist. It was as ridiculous as saying, are you familiar with the Pac-Man Motomedy plan for the budget? Right. And 25% of people answered that they were familiar with that. <laughs> so that, there's no reason to answer that that way to show that you don't know. You could have just said, no, you're not familiar with that one, but you are familiar with the other ones. Right. But there you go. Absolutely. So what I'm saying, I guess, is because of how this one was done, maybe the number isn't quite 50%. Maybe it's a little bit lower, but still incredible numbers. You put yourself in stupid places. Yes, I think you know it's true. Situations where it's easy to look down on you. Think you like to be the victim. Think you like to be in pain. I think you make yourself a victim almost every single day. All right, today's Media Watch on MSNBC. Uh, now, it's not news to anyone that MSNBC has been slightly positive coverage towards the Obama administration. Now, uh, Al Sharpton, of course, famously said uh, to 60 Minutes that uh, he would never criticize the president and then wound up as an MSNBC host. It's a curious stance to take, but all right. Uh, but, you know, that was just one host, and there are many hosts at MSNBC who do a good job. And look, I was obviously there for a while, and I left because of some of these issues. So I, I don't like to talk about it that often. I, I'll be honest with you. Part of it is because I don't want people to say, oh, sour grapes, etc. And it seems like I've got a certain perspective on it. So I don't like to harp on it, okay? And I don't. 
And, ha- you know, right before the election, MSNBC did every single one of their stories the week before the election on Obama was positive. Every single one of their stories on Romney was negative. Now, I, I didn't talk about that much, and I can give you 28 examples, but we didn't get into it. Now they've jumped the shark. So I gotta say something. They've hired two new uh, analysts Robert Gibbs, the former White House press secretary, and now David Axelrod as well. He was the top advisor to the president. <laughs> Come on! Look, how many times have I defended MSNBC before I was on it, while I was on it, after I was on it, saying they are not like Fox News? And they're not. Fox News lies all the time, and I know the hosts on MSNBC take great care to not misrepresent anything, and they give you facts. Now, they clearly have a perspective, but that's good. I have a perspective. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. To me, the only thing that's wrong is if you follow the Fox logic of, well, we represent the Republican Party, and that's what we're going to do, and so the MSNBC follows suit by just simply representing the Democratic Party rather than having a progressive perspective. That's problematic. And if you really think that Gibbs and Axelrod, right after they come out of the Obama administration and the Obama campaign, are going to really call it down the middle. Come on, but nobody believes that. So, except apparently Gibbs and Axelrod. Robert Gibbs says, quote, I don't see it as either being a cheerleader for the president or as a spokesman for the administration's point of view. But wait, Robert, that's exactly what you did just a little while ago. And now you're going to tell me that all of a sudden it's going to be different. Now, look, it's not that it can't happen. George Stephanopoulos built a career and he worked really hard at saying, hey, look, I moved on and I'm now a journalist and I don't do that anymore. You really think Axelrod and Gibbs are not going to go back into democratic politics? Like when Fox News hired Karl Rove, he wasn't going to be involved in Republican politics? Come on, right? Nobody believes that. Axelrod says, my role is not that of a surrogate, but an analyst and commentator. I'm proud of my work for and with the president. But in this role, I will offer observations based on my experience over 35 years in journalism and politics. Simple phrase for this, not buying it. You're going to do, unfortunately, what a lot of MSNBC analysts and some hosts are doing these days, which is, Obama, yay! Nothing wrong with a perspective, but cheerleading for an official party well, that's not good news, let's put it that way. But Phil Griffin, the president of the network, reassures us, though. Quote, this channel has never been the voice of Obama. Ever. Oh, well, I didn't know that, if you say so. And part of the reason I'm upset is because I want MSNBC to be better than that. I don't want them to just follow the Fox model. Again, they don't lie, so it's, there's an enormous difference. But if Fox is propaganda for the Republicans, if you're going in the direction of that for the Democrats, it's not a good direction to go. I want MSNBC to be better than that. That's all. to bring death and destruction to 
this nation's enemies. Now, in regards to Al-Awlaki, people say, well, the government, that's such a terrible thing that the government can kill a U.S. citizen. But first of all, Al-Awlaki crossed a very, very, very broad line. This line is so broad, it's got flashing warning signs telling you you're about to cross it. You know, when you cross that line into aiding and abetting the killing of Americans, you can't then hide behind, oh, I'm an American. You can't just hide behind that anymore. It, it doesn't work anymore. You have to face the consequences that if you if you go that route and you pass that, that broad warning line with, with the warning signs and the visual aid telling you you're about to cross it, then you have to expect that you're going to get a hellfire on your head. And this is okay for me. I'm, I'm, I don't fear my government. Let me, let me, I hate to break it down to you guys, but they could do that at any time they wanted to. Okay? They could go crazy any time they wanted to. It's one of those arguments you always, you, you also hear with, with, uh, with guns. Well, do you need nuclear weapons to fight the government? Because they have nuclear weapons. I hate to break it to you, but if they ever start nuking their own people, civilization is pretty much over as you know it. It's never gonna, nothing's ever gonna be the same again, I promise. It's the same thing with drones. They already have the capabilities. If they choose to start executing political dissenters inside the United States, well, civilization is already its already over, as you know it. It's already over, as you know it. It's not going to change. Okay? So, it's probably not going to happen. The government's gone overboard before. We don't live in a police state. Ruby Ridge, for instance. Waco is another case where the government, you know, going over and, and beyond what they should have done. But we still don't live in a police state. The President of the United States knows that there's going to be a, fear, a, a fervor if he utilizes this inside the United States. And therefore, he's not going to do it. So I'm not too worried about it myself. And I kind of support it. That's all I had to say. Hi, Jay. This is Ian Baltimore. I wanted to respond to the caller who was concerned that the U.S. government could target Americans who were considered terrorists and kill them with a drone strike. The example she used was a shooter in Colorado being called a terrorist. The good news is, this actually isn't possible under the legal framework laid out by the white paper that we saw. In the first case, the paper dealt with an interpretation of the president's war powers, which means killing of that kind can only be used on Al-Qaeda members and members of affiliated organizations. Second, the legal justification for using an unmanned drone is that subject, the subject cannot be ca uh, captured without causing undue risk to the soldiers. That's easy to justify legally when you're talking about a foreign country where we don't have permission to operate ground troops, but will be much, much rarer in the United States itself. I don't want to endorse the program. I think it's ill-conceived, but I think the legal opinion, uh, I don't think the legal opinion fails the constitutional test other than the fact that it's vague, which is intentional because it's meant to not give out the full details of the actual legal opinions. Here's the thing, though. Because it's a matter of war, there isn't due process. The concept of due process doesn't apply on the battlefield. Soldiers at war don't follow any sort of due process for considering killing someone. The only limitations are things like if someone is surrendering, uh, you know, killing them would be a war crime, things like that. But in terms of how we treat Al-Qaeda, they are an enemy army, legally speaking. I know that that's complicated because the lack of defined borders, etc meant that we had to redefine what a battlefield was. But technically speaking, we declared war on Al-Qaeda. So that's the legal framework in which all of it works. 
I think these changes are foolish and have incentivized a state of constant war that ultimately undermines our balance of powers in our country. Uh, but that said, I don't think any of it's actually illegal. Not much different, say, from when we drop bombs on cities like Dresden uh, to attack, you know, the production capacity of our enemies. Technically speaking, uh, I, I don't think it's really any different from that uh, in terms of uh, civilian casualties and, and killing people we don't know we're killing from a legal standpoint because we're at war. But I, I don't think that that works in our benefit in the long run, and I don't think that those tactics were really uh, particularly good tactics in, in, in the any case. So, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So my understanding is that Wade, who called in today, you know, he listens to nearly all, if not all, of the episodes I put out, which I appreciate. But, you know, assuming he listened to the episode about drones, I'm stunned that he would then call in and parrot all of the talking points that were so easily dispensed with and discredited in that show. And he, he called more than once, but I only had time to play one of them. And, you know, but he made, he, he said everything you would have guessed. You know, if, if a guy's really, really bad, then it's okay to completely dispense with his constitutional rights. You know, we get the bad guys this way with drones because we can't use the police in foreign countries. Uh, and, you know, we hit them this way so that we can kill them without them hurting us and, and at the same time. And all this completely ignores you know, the presumption of innocence, which is a fundamental part of our judicial system. You know, the fact that without judicial due process, we literally cannot be sure if a person is guilty. So we are putting people to death without deciding that they're guilty officially. And it's just, you know, it, it's only coming from the executive branch with no judicial oversight, completely wiping away the balance of powers in our government, completely ignores the existence of an organization like Interpol, which exists specifically to track criminals internationally. So of course we could use police work to go after people like this. And then completely ignores blowback and the creation of more terrorists when we kill, uh, you know, people in so-called collateral damage of course, the families of those who are killed are going to hate America for generations and some will become terrorists and then kill Americans for generations to come. And so in the end, the only reason to do it is because it might feel like the right thing to do at the time, but it only makes sense if you completely ignore all of the broader implications and context. And so then to the second caller's point, you know, we can all pretend that it's constitutional. I know he's coming at it from a good place, but making that point that it's constitutional because we're pretending to be at war. You know, we went to war in reaction to a criminal act. That was George Bush's doing. And you literally can't go to war against an idea, you know, a, a, an organization like Al-Qaeda. You go to war against nations. Armies fight armies, not individuals. And so we went to war in reaction to a criminal act in exactly the opposite way that we reacted to a criminal act of terror like the Oklahoma City bombing. Timothy McVeigh wanted to start a war with his act of terrorism too, just like bin Laden did, only bin Laden was actually successful with his goal. Let me read a, a little bit from a very old article. This is uh, almost 10 years old. It was written in uh, April 2003 by Tom Hartman, regular contributor to Best of the Left. 
And this is what Tom uh, has to say on, uh, this is called The Crime of the Century, A Never-Ending War Against Terrorism. And so in between 2002 and 2004, he says, this is a good time to sit down in a library or bookstore and browse, quote, the Turner Diaries and Gore Vidal's, quote, Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. The former was the inspiration for Timothy McVeigh, the latter includes his self-written eulogy. Together they show how terrorist McVeigh chose the wrong administration and terrorist Osama bin Laden, by luck of the draw, chose the right one, to harm American democracy. The Turner Diaries is an apocalyptic novel that opens with a convenience store robbery and ends with an Armageddon-style worldwide holocaust leaving only the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant standing. The government of the United States responds to a terrorist attack, the bombing of a federal building in Oklahoma, this was written before the Oklahoma City bombing, it says the government of the United States responds to a terrorist attack the bombing of a federal building in Oklahoma by cracking down on dissent, expanding the power of the executive branch, and shredding constitutional civil rights protections. White patriots respond by declaring war against the government that had once tried to take away their guns. Thus begins the cycle of violence that ends with the ultimate worldwide war, a vision straight out of the book of Revelation. But Tim McVeigh's expectation of a repressive federal reaction to his right-wing terrorism ran into a snag. Bill Clinton knew the difference between a rogue nation and a rogue criminal. Like every president since George Washington, Bill Clinton knew that nations only declare war against nations while armies deal with rogue states, police deal with criminals, be they domestic or international. Like Germany's response to the Red Army Faction, Italy's response to the Red Brigades, and Greece's response to the 17th of November terrorist group, among others. Clinton brought the full force of the criminal justice system against McVeigh and even had Interpol and overseas police agencies looking for possible McVeigh affiliates. The result was that the trauma of the Oklahoma City terrorist bombing was limited, closure was achieved for its victims, the civil rights of all Americans were largely left intact, and the United States government was able to get back to its constitutionally defined job of ensuring life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for its citizens. Every president from Washington to Clinton understood the logic expressed by our founders when James Madison on April 20th, 1795 wrote, quote, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it compromises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies, from these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. No nation could preserve its freedom under the midst of continual warfare. The crime of 9-11 has often been cited to rationalize the loss of civil liberties and the ongoing traumatizing of the American people with daily terror alerts and a never-ending war on terror. But 9-11 wasn't an act of war, because it wasn't done against us by a nation. It was instead a crime perpetrated by a criminal and his followers. It was a horrific crime, certainly, a crime that required strong, swift, and sure response, but Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda are not nations. Bin Laden was a criminal, and his group was a Middle Eastern sort of mafia with terrorist ambitions. To continue using our military against a criminal organization will only compound the horrific crime of 9-11, because armies aren't particularly good at police work. It's time to restore civil liberties to Americans, rein in an executive branch intoxicated by warfare, and hand over to American and international national police agencies the very real and very big job of dealing with the remnants of al-Qaeda around the world and prevent a recurrence of 9-11 by investigating who was involved and how they pulled it off in the first place. Anything less will simply perpetuate this crime of the century. So remember, that was written in 2003. 
he was already talking about the loss of civil liberties and uh, an executive branch run wild with power, uh, with you know expanded war powers. And in this country, we make terrible decisions because we have terrible information to work with. As I think shown in today's episode, foreigners who see American media either pity us or just laugh. It's pathetic and we get what we deserve because we have the media we're willing to settle for. We don't demand more, so we get the lowest common denominator. And if we had a media that told us what was going on and people actually understood not only what our government was doing in our name and what civil liberties we were losing, but also took into consideration the broader implications and context of actions being taken in our name and the effects that they will have in the future, I think we would have nothing to do with it. But of course, we have no idea. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, please support the show, uh, as I think the importance of it was uh, shown in today's episode. Support this show and all independent media, but you can support this one by becoming a member or making one-time donations. All that can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com Oh, oh, oh.